Good morning, it's Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9009, which is our grad seminar in evidence-based policy here at Western. As it's, I was, I was going to say as always, it certainly feels like always. Um, I am joined by my co-hosts Chewbacca and Lucy uh, and cats Fio and um, Louie and Mr. Huey's upstairs probably about to start bellowing because now I'm taping. Welcome to COVID quarantine life at the Huey, at the Huey Ranch. <laughs> so let's get started. Uh, today's topic is the art of dissent. It's really easy for someone such as myself to preach to other researchers, academics, go out and change the world. But the reality is change is difficult. Not just changing yourself or trying to influence others to change, but just the whole process of putting yourself out there as an agent for change. Basically, if you're advocating for change in policy, practice, program, and so on, you are dissenting from whatever the status quo is today. And dissent is not fun. It's not for the faint-hearted. It requires you to be willing to challenge other people's beliefs, values, norms. It's, it means actually engaging with people in ways that might be emotionally or otherwise uncomfortable for you and certainly for them because you're asking for change. And it also entails a certain level of um, ability to have a thick skin, really, because people are going to not respond always in positive ways. And sometimes uh, the pushback is personal and not just intellectual. And you kind of have to have a, a willingness to, to ride through that and ride through your discomfort with the possibility that people just might not like your ideas and might not even like you. Um, that is what happens when we put ourselves out there. So today's topic is the art of dissent. I want to give you some uh, hope, if you will, <laughs> some strategies, some tactics for dealing, for understanding what it is that you're doing by challenging the status quo and how you can uh, ameliorate some of the negative consequences or come up with strategies that might help you work through some of the potential pushback. So let's get started. First of all, what we have to understand is we've got to understand the context in which, you know, change occurs within not just social sciences, but more broadly. I think the work of Thomas Kuhn and this concept of paradigm and paradigm shifts helps us. What is a paradigm? It's a universally recognized um, set of scientific achievements that provide model uh, a model for understanding social and other types of problems as well as solutions for community researchers. Paradigm over time, that's how it started out, is sort of a Kuhn's work on the revolution of, um, uh, uh, sorry, the, this is what happened, too early in the damn morning. This is uh, Kuhn's study of scientific revolutions. However, over time, people have begun to understand that per paradigms, also sometimes referred to as perspectives, are, go well beyond the sciences, the social sciences, 
we typically operate, whether it's in institutions or groups, through existing paradigms. And so I think this idea of paradigms and paradigm shifts is super helpful for thinking through affecting broader levels of change. Mm. Sorry, <clears throat> bit of a bit of a, a sore throat this morning. So you'll hear me, unfortunately, gobbling down a lot of uh, a lot of water. Okay, Kuhn says paradigms gain their status because they are more successful than their competitors in solving a few problems that a group of practitioners has come to recognize as acute. We settle on paradigms, sometimes smartly, sometimes less than smartly, uh, because we see them, as Kuhn says, as providing a solution. But over time, what happens is that people start to question the status quo, start to question the solution, find ways in which the solution or the, the paradigm or the perspective doesn't answer this issue or doesn't, isn't really perhaps the best way to deal with that issue. And so what happens is, and this is part of a normal process, Kuhn argues, is that you get a couple of people that, as I say, dissent from the status quo, test out alternative ideas, start to advocate for those alternative ways of, of working, thinking, reacting, responding. And of course, it creates a sense of crisis. Oh, wow, maybe we're not doing everything the best way possible, you know. And oftentimes what happens is, I see this when I, when I in relation to organizational change, um, when you're trying to affect organizational change, oftentimes people will retrench. They will defend, if you will, how it is that they're doing something. And it might be because change is difficult for, for most, let's say pretty much most human beings, change is difficult. It might be because there's some sort of an ego involvement. So I'm attached to this program. I developed this program. I think it works perfectly. Um, careers might be at stake. Uh, there might be a feeling of threat that if this new model comes in, it's going to impact me negatively. I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons why people will retrench. That causes, of course, some interesting issues for the people that are advocating for the change. But the thing is, if you persevere enough, ideally, and you've got great evidence to inform a, a good public policy shift, then... Uh, over time, enough people, there's enough consensus built around this, the need for this, and then you get a paradigm shift. And then, of course, the process starts all over again in typically, you know, anywhere like, you know, 5, 7, 10, 20 years down the road. A great way of thinking about how people can really just just pull back from a paradigm shift to become entrenched in their views is what's called the Semmelweis reflex. I should probably say it properly, Semmelweis. So the Semmelweis reflex. Um, Semmelweis was a doctor who, uh, in a hospital setting, observed that women that came into hospitals Oftentimes, this is back in the 1800s, had higher rates of not just infant mortality, but also uh, uh, death uh, mortality in, in women giving childbirth. Uh, it was, I think it was called something called purpural fever or childbed fever. And um, 
observing that that women were dying at higher rates in the hospital, he noticed that women who had home births attended by midwives tended to have more successful uh, live births of their children as well as were more likely to survive themselves and, and not have puerperal fever. Well, he wanted to understand what could be the dynamic that caused this. And he realized that it had something to do with the doctors that were attending women in the hospitals. Doctors back in the day were not the specialists that we have uh, currently who specialize, you know, I'm a heart surgeon, I'm a, I'm a neurologist and so on. So doctors were more likely doing, a, we're, sorry, we're more doing general, blah, 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 blah. we're doing a whole range of different activities. So they might have been down in the morgue cutting up, uh, doing an autopsy and with somebody who might have had a disease and then came straight from there to, to attend a woman in childbirth. And what they weren't doing is they weren't washing their hands. They were literally going from one patient to the other without washing their hands. And so they were carrying infectious diseases, bacteria, bacterial agents and so on to women in childbirth. Whereas the midwives had clean hands. They, they weren't doing the same, the same type of activities. And so Semmelweis put out a paper that should have been influential, suggesting that we need, we need doctors to wash their hands. And what ended up happening is he was ridiculed. He was ridiculed for these, the set of beliefs. And I can't remember correctly, but I, I think and some you can Google, Dr. Google will help you. I think that not only was he ridiculed, he might've had a bit of a nervous breakdown over this, but the bottom line was the establishment ran him out of town on rails. Ludicrous idea, just thinking that doctors have to wash their hands. Well, of course, today we know that Semmelweis was absolutely and utterly correct. And in fact, not only was he correct, I have a little, there's a great, um, there's a fantastic set of books by a researcher called Atul Gavand. Gavand, Gavand, Gavand. Now me and the V's and the W's today, this is not happening. Um, Gavand, he's not Austrian. Um, and so in, the, in these books, he talks about a whole bunch of different elements of, uh, of thinking around medicine and so on. And one of the things that he observes is that it's still difficult today, even, even you know, pre-COVID in 2019, it was still difficult to get doctors to always consistently make sure that they, um, that they use hand sanitizers. And in fact, hospitals have experimented with putting hand sanitizer stations pretty much everywhere the doctors go to make sure that those that sanitization is taking place. Um, it's not because people are ignorant now to the understanding of how uh, viruses and bac bacterial infections can transmit. It is. It has to do with um, people just forget. We get stuck in our routine. We're thinking of X, Y, and Z, and we're not consciously aware. It's a behavioral change that we are trying to affect, and behavioral change is difficult for a lot of reasons. 
Oh, it helps if I go through my slides correctly. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Kathleen, talking about groupthink. We, we have a lot of difficulty getting individuals to change behaviors, and we have a lot of difficulty getting people in groups to change behaviors because of this concept, groupthink. What happens with groupthink is that a small uh, cluster of people actively suppresses dissent, suppresses creativity, suppresses independent thinking because they want to reach a group, a consensus decision. You see this whenever you get groups together that have to decide on a policy or practice. There are always a couple dominant voices in the room. I'm not going to lie to you, depending on the topic, I can be a dominant voice or a passive voice if, I, if I'm not really invested in, in the outcome. So it's not even necessarily a personality thing. It might be individuals feel passionately about something. And so they tend to dominate. And when they get their point of view, they want to inculcate that point of view across everybody else to reach some type of a consensus. So whenever you have a consensus decision, some people's voices are gonna be silenced, diminished, suggestions aren't taken. And whether we're consciously aware of it or not, that is an intentional strategy for reaching consensus. It is very difficult to reach a consensus point of view that is that broad that it takes everybody in. But what makes it more difficult is sometimes the dissenting voice, and I would argue many times, the dissenting voice is raising really good thing, uh, ideas, uh, criticisms that need to be taken into account. And in the rush to creating this consensus, opportunities for actually producing very strong policies, programs, and practices get diminished. There's a certain level of group loyalty that plays into this as well. Let's face it, any kind of group, their alliances, whether they come in with alliances or alliances are built up, we tend to look at people, even in a situation where you didn't know anybody at the table before, you start to measure people up and think, am I more like this person? Am I more like that person in terms of my thoughts? Um, and so a, a certain level of loyalty starts to build up, especially over time, that influences the group's collective beliefs uh, because what happens is those alliances will lead to trying to stifle or squash dissent. Dun, 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 just changing. Kaplan also talks about the role that fear plays in dissent. Somebody posted up on Twitter the other day about how difficult it is to do, um, the, how difficult it is to put themselves out to do things like what I'm doing right now, which is taping a lecture, putting it out for a podcast, doing media, just speaking, or worse yet, speaking up in front of an audience. And the reality is, even in meeting situations, people can feel very um, intimidated about speaking up. And again, people think, oh, well, personalities, like Laura's got a big personality, she's, she's pretty dominant, and that's true. But it depends on the circumstances. If I'm sitting, if I was sitting at a table full of Nobel Prize winning scientists talking about something, I might be a little bit intimidated, just a little. And so, you know, the idea of speaking up in that sort of situation is difficult. So we all, people look at some people and go, oh, well, that, per that person, you know, they, they don't ever 
feel these fears. They wouldn't understand. We all do. And if anybody ever says that they don't feel fear about speaking up in any type of situation ever, they're full of it. Speaking up always carries with it costs and potential costs. And we know that. And so oftentimes what will happen is people that have valid points of view will sort of, as Kaplan says, they will slink away because they really don't want to be in a confrontational situation. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to express an unpopular view or there's of course the, the famous worry about being wrong. Look at um, Ash's experiments with the different lengths of, of um, what were they, matches or sticks and, and how easily people who know that they're right and that there's a problem feel this desire to conform. And so there really is strengths in numbers and as a consequence, dissenters generally are disliked or certainly feel disliked. They become, you know, become targets, if you will, or can, certainly can feel that way and ex experience a sense of, of dislike and rejection, especially if they're being persistent in dissenting. This is why I say this is not for the faint of heart, especially within organizations. Leaders and managers say that they appreciate when employees take the initiative to offer help, build networks, gather new knowledge. However, there is one form of initiative, Kaplan argues, that does get penalized, speaking up with suggestions. In one study across manufacturing, service, retail, and nonprofit settings, the more frequently employees voiced ideas and concerns upward, the less likely they were to receive raises and promotions over a two-year period. And in an experiment, when individuals voiced their objections to racism, they were criticized as self-righteous by those who failed to speak out against it. So what he argues is when we climb up the ladder, the moral ladder, it can be rather lonely at the top. Again, we can start to parse out different types of dissent and how they might cause a a sort of a, a retrenchment, uh, a Semmelweis ref reflex when it comes to speaking up about suggestions about how certain things are going wrong. Yes, there's going there's going to be uh, a response to that. That is probably going to be negative. However, over time, you might be able to overcome that. When it comes to speaking out about issues to do with what are perceived to be moral defects, character defects, and so on, that feels to the individual like not just an attack on what they're doing, but an attack on who they are. And so we're going to see a much more bitter backlash, if you will, rather than any type of a constructive uh, engagement. And we see this over and over again in a whole variety of different contexts. So how you dissent and how you get your message across is as important in this context as it is in every other context that we're going to talk about over the course of this semester. I like the work of a fellow by the name of Adam Grant. Grant is a business scholar at Wharton. Uh, and he focuses in on all sorts of really interesting issues that go well beyond just for the business community. 
he has written extensively about dissent and how ideas can move through organizations, institutions, and groups. And one of the things he draws our attention to is the question of power versus status. One of the things we have to unpack as dissenters is what we bring to the table. Um, to, he says what, what we have to look at is that some people have power and some people have status, but those two things do not necessarily go together. And you can exercise both in ways that can help you advocate for change. Power um, involves being able to exercise control or or or, uh, or, or authority over others. Clearly, I needed that second cup of coffee this morning. Power, in Huey's terms, is the ability to manifest things, to make things happen. Not, I don't see it as just authority over others because I think you can have power in, in, and manifest it in a variety of different ways, including the power to make a new policy, to make a new program. A status is different. It is about being respected and admired. There's a lot of people who are respected and admired because of their beliefs, because of what they their uh, behaviors. So for example, a well-respected writer might be somebody like Toni Morrison, um, Maya Angelou. However, they, they do not necessarily have power, or did have power, in the same sense that, say, uh, the head of, of Health Canada has power. But the head of Health Canada might have power, but might not be respected in the same way. So that's, even though as, I, as both myself and Grant say, these things are, are, they are two dimensions of social hierarchy that are often erroneously lumped together, but they actually can be separate things. Why is it important to know this? As researchers, we might have status. We often don't have power. And so we have to deal with people who have power who might not have status, and we have to negotiate and leverage our status in ways that allows us to be heard. And by the way, we can't expect that because we showed up with a PhD or a study or a this or a that, that we have status. Status is, um, although there is a certain level of deference to researchers, to people with titles like doctor, that I've seen in various different communities, oh, doctor so-and-so, uh, status is something that has to be ideally earned over a period of time based on a body of work that one has done. Uh, a lot of people try to exert influence, as Grant says, but they, they don't actually have the respect. And one of the ways in which that we see, we see the undermining, again, go back to what I've said previously about loopholes. So you're an expert, you showed up, you're citing a study, you're saying you've got to change because of this. Well, there's always another expert, it seems, on the other side or another study or another loophole to undermine the status and expertise of you as the advocate for change. So we've got to pay attention to these things. We also have to pay attention to issues around race, ethnicity, and gender. Because 
there are different ways in which based on your uh, ethnicity, based on your gender, based on your sexual identity, based on all sorts of different factors, you can more easily be taken seriously and more easily not taken seriously, completely dismissed and sidelined. Grant talks about gender in relation to uh, how females who, em who embody um, or are in positions of authority, who speak authoritatively as experts, are often treated as though they were bossy, difficult. Um, you know, I've been called many, many names. I laugh now about all, I mean, I honestly, I, I now have wear, start to wear that as a badge of honor because um, it, what it means is that you're violating gender norms by being a woman who's speaking out, especially as I do, I speak out in predominantly male-dominated circles. And I don't hold back and I don't play gender games, meaning I don't, I don't buy into other people's stereotypes. I just be me. And if that's an issue, then I always say that's your issue. That's not my issue. Women are just as capable. I shouldn't even have to say this, but let's, let's put it out there. Women, uh, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it best. Uh, women should be every place where decisions are made, where important decisions are made. Sheryl Sandberg, uh, who is the CEO, COO of Facebook, has a great book called Lean In, which talks about uh, gender and uh, taking on a authoritative uh, role in a business setting. And she says, voice is an act of leadership. Having a voice speaking up is being a leader. However, when women or she says girls, when women try to lead, we are often labeled as bossy. And to illustrate, Grant talks about a study that he did in which he found that new revenue generating ideas led to higher performance evaluations for men, but not for women. Women who spoke up and provided great ideas for, for a bank and for an international, uh, for a healthcare company, you know, there's a double standard there because why we expect men to have voice and to be leaders and we do not expect that from women. We devalue women's contributions. So when women offer suggestions, it's not just that they are devalued, but they're perceived as being less loyal than men and therefore let, uh, companies are less likely to implement their pr proposals. In other words, in male-dominated organizations, women pay a price for exercising voice. Let's talk about an even more interesting case. What Grant refers to as the double minority. It, research in business shows that when African-American women speak up, they are treated differently than both white women and black men. In fact, what happens is when um, it, when black women speak up, they're evaluated. Uh, they're it's considered stereotypically normal, therefore acceptable. 
right? We've got these gender and racialized stereotypes around black women. So we expect black women to speak up, but when they speak up and they, their uh, suggestions uh, are deemed as not feasible, not workable, uh, failures and so on, then they're evaluated more harshly than both black men and white women and male leaders. So in other words, they, uh, they are treated more unfairly and more likely to be blamed for any mistakes than their white counterparts certainly and their black male counterparts as well. So they pay this, so what appears to be this stereotype, uh, this, this stereotype that might provide an advantage actually works against them. We have another issue in relation to affecting change, especially within organizations and institutions, is called the middle manager problem. Uh, the reality is, is that when, as, as you can start to see through this discussion, that there's a certain level of going along to get along within organizations to show loyalty and so on. Your loyalty will be rewarded. You, you can make suggestions, but they've got to be suggestions that don't thoroughly rock the boat to, so you can get into a middle manager position from which ideally you will then springboard up to the up, upper echelons of your organization or institution where you can then affect major change. This is, this is business, institutional, organizational, hierarchy 101. Remember though, you're not going to be affecting significant change within your institution until you become a, a top level leader and have the power to do that. As a middle manager, you are going to conform and go along to get along. And so this is what we call the middle manager problem. If you take you, anybody that's worked within an organization knows this. If you take your ideas to a middle manager, chances are that they will sit on that desk for 18, 24, 36, five years, uh, those were months, five years, 10 years, and so on. Why? Because middle managers are positions that are dominated by insecurity, with, and so therefore, they, there's more to be gained by maintaining the status quo than bucking the system. You play what, what Grant calls a game of follow the leader to prove your worth. Oh, I don't know how I managed to get my slides out of order, but I did. There is another sort of interesting um, phenomenon that Grant talks about, which is where we get into the whole power versus status thing, especially for researchers. And it's something called idiosyncrasy credits. <clears throat> what happens is within organizations, uh, low status members who try to challenge the status quo are generally squashed like little bugs on somebody's windshield. However, over time, as people build respect, but not necessarily rank and power, but they build respect, then they start to accrue a little bit, they start to accrue credit for that. And so when they come up with ideas that are quote unquote outside the box, they're viewed as idiosyncratic and they're more likely to be tolerated because they have built that status. 
Now, what does that mean for researchers? Well, we also deal with a variety of stereotypes associated with being academics. So we're expected to be, most people think uh, academic researchers are ultra left wing, leaning liberal types, that we have where uh, we, we think and we want to talk a lot about big ideas. I had to tell somebody one time at a cocktail party, like, look, I want to talk about the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I do not want to talk about books of philosophy, please. That's, you know, it's not fun, right? But that's a stereotype. We sit around thinking deep thoughts all day long. That we show up in jeans with tweed jackets and, and scraggly beards and... I don't know, what's the female equivalent to that? Uh, Birkenstocks and, um, and I don't know, braided hair? I don't, I have no, with purple hair. And I have, by the way, showed up multiple times with purple hair, just so we're clear. Um, why do, why those are the stereotypes? Yep, we go into a situation with decision makers, uh, with policy makers and so on, they kind of expect that we're going to be a little bit out of the box already and that's great as long as we can back that up and get their respect they're willing to see us as idiosyncratic unusual odd I had um, somebody in the policing community say to me multiple times well that people just that's just the way you are people just expect that that's you know that's just your thing that's just you your personality and I'm not going to lie somebody that pushes for change I have, I, I'm consciously aware of my personality and how to use that strategically. And a lot of times people thought some things that I did that were ultra challenging, ultra pushing the boundaries of what was considered to be acceptable and so on. In if I, and I work in a policing environment. In policing as a woman, if I had behaved that way within that institution, I would have completely been not only discredited, but run out of town for some of the things I've done, which is being very vocal, challenging leaders publicly, speaking up and using language that was less than ladylike on multiple occasions, including at a uh, high-level police chief's meeting in which I referred to consultants as mother bleep, That, and it's interesting, when you play the idiosyncrasy game, there are, yes, there, there's, there's limits. There are some people that will be much more willing to accept that and others who won't. Out of that meeting, some people were completely alienated and thought it was terrible. And other people said, wow, that was fantastic what you did. It was like a breath of fresh air. Um, but I, I had to consciously go in. I, I did. I consciously went in and thought, how am I going to play this scenario? And what I wanted to do was to use my idiosyncrasy credits, if you will, to try to get to shock people into thinking differently about some things that, that needed to be changed, that I felt needed to be changed, and could back that up, by the way. You have to really be conscious about these things and the insider versus outsider dichotomy. Um, like I said, there's certain things you can get away with as an outsider that you absolutely can't, but that said, you could also get your access cut off depending on how far you push the idiosyncrasy things. 
So where I want to wrap up is this question that I want you to consider. What might be some ways in which a potential change agent could accrue it, their, your own idiosyncrasy credits so that you can stand out from the crowd, so to speak, in the policy environment to, so that you can be heard and so that you can challenge the status quo, but in ways in which you will be heard, you will be given a voice or your voice will be heard. That I think is an important question to leave you with. So on that note, peace out. I'll catch you on the flip side.